This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A quick note, the name of today's subject is pronounced many different ways. To avoid confusion, we will be referring to her by the most common pronunciation, Sacagawea. Quote, Madonna of her race, she had led the way to a new time. To the hands of this girl, not yet 18, had been entrusted the key that unlocked the road to Asia. End quote. Those words were written by novelist Eva Emery Dye about Sacagawea, the only woman on Lewis and Clark's famous cross-country expedition. Sacagawea was born the daughter of a Native American chief. She was captured and enslaved by an opposing tribe, then sold as a bride to a Canadian fur trapper. She gave birth to a baby and nursed him while crossing the continent with Lewis and Clark. And she did all of this before the age of 17. We usually credit Meriwether Lewis and William Clark with leading the first expedition across the North American continent. But the Corps of Discovery's westward journey wouldn't have succeeded if it wasn't for one dauntless, unbreakable teenage girl. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Sacagawea, the young mother and native guide who helped Lewis and Clark traverse the continent and make American history. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you ask how to help the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. And now, back to the life of Sacagawea. In 1803, just two decades after the United States became its own nation, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were commissioned to explore the North American continent all the way to the sea. 
Their corps of discovery was comprised mostly of military men, but there was one member of the party who stood out from all the rest. Sacagawea was the only Native American, the only woman, and the youngest member of the expedition. Yet her background and talents made her one of the most valuable members of the team. She proved time and time again that she was just as tough as any of the men, and she used her interpreting skills and natural diplomacy to broker peace between the expedition and the Native American tribes they met along their way. Sacagawea has become a symbol of the countless unacknowledged contributions made by both women and Native Americans to the nation's early history. But behind the legend, there was a very real young woman who lived through one of the most turbulent periods in North American history. When Sacagawea was born in the Rocky Mountains in 1788, it was a time of great upheaval across the continent. The native societies that had been in North America for thousands of years were being drawn into conflicts with European settlers who laid their own claim on the lands. To the east, the United States had just won its independence and was rapidly expanding westward. The French Canadians had colonized the north, and the Spanish had claimed the southwest. These skirmishes, in addition to the long-standing rivalries between different tribes, made it a difficult time to live in the North American West. Sacagawea was born into the Lemai band of the Shoshone tribe in the Rocky Mountains, in what is now Idaho. The Lemai Shoshone were buffalo hunters who coexisted peacefully with the surrounding tribes. Sacagawea's father was the chief of their band, a leadership position that was earned through hunting prowess, not birthright. Not much is known about her family, but she had either an older brother or cousin named Kameawate. The words for cousin and brother are the same in the Shoshone language. Because the children of one's aunts and uncles were considered as close as immediate siblings, so it's unclear whether Sacagawea and Kameawate shared the same parents. Either way, the Shoshone often lived with their entire extended family, so it's likely they grew up in the same home. Even though Shoshone women were not allowed to hunt with the men, they were generally respected within the tribe. They were allowed to contest an arranged marriage and even get divorced. As the daughter of the chief, young Sacagawea would have been especially well-respected within the community. The Shoshone generally led peaceful lives, coexisting with the tribes around them. But around the turn of the 19th century, they were driven from their hunting grounds by rival tribes armed with muskets. Other tribes in the area had traded with the French Canadians for modern weapons, but the Shoshone typically traded with the Spanish, who refused to give them muskets. This put them at a disadvantage when the better-armed tribes invaded their hunting grounds. One of these tribes, the Hidatsa tribe of what is now North Dakota, had acquired a vast array of guns and weapons from European settlers. In 1800, a party of Hidatsa raiders arrived at the Lemai tribe's camp. The Lemai were capable hunters and fierce warriors, but they were ill-prepared to defend themselves against the Hadatsa's advanced weapons. The raiders stole their horses and food and kidnapped several young girls to sell as slaves. One of those girls was 12-year-old Sacagawea. Sacagawea was taken away. It was the last time she would ever see her parents. 
Something to note here, Sacagawea has been spelled a number of different ways by different historians. Authors often exchange the G for a J or substitute K for C. Since Shoshone is an exclusively oral language, English speakers simply wrote her name as best they could phonetically. But the spelling is only one small part of a larger dispute. In light of Sacagawea's capture by the Hidatsa, the meaning of her name is unclear as well. In the Shoshone language, Sacagawea means boat launcher. But in the Hidatsan language of the Great Plains, the same name means bird woman. It's unknown whether Sacagawea was born with the name we remember her as, or if it was given to her by her Hidatsa captors. After her kidnapping, 12-year-old Sacagawea was taken to the Hidatsa Knife River village near what is now Bismarck, North Dakota. It's likely that she spent her first few years there working on the Hidatsa farms, where they grew corn, beans, and squash. In 1803, when she was only around 15, Sacagawea was sold as a wife to a French-Canadian fur trader named Toussaint Charbonneau. Charbonneau, who was around 40 years old, was born in Quebec, but he'd spent enough time around Plains Native Americans to pick up some of their language and customs. One of the customs was polygamy. Charbonneau already had one wife, another captured Shoshone girl named Otter Woman, who was around Sacagawea's age. But that didn't stop him from making Sacagawea his second wife. Even beyond the slave trading and child marriage, Charbonneau was a brutal man. Ten years earlier, he'd been stabbed in a dispute after he raped a native girl in Canada. But as a slave, Sacagawea had no say in the marriage. The Hidatsa thought they were well within their rights to barter away Sacagawea's life even to a man as vile as Charbonneau. Sacagawea remained with Charbonneau and Otter Woman in the same Hidatsa village where she'd been held captive for years. While Sacagawea was adjusting to her new life, the young country on the other side of the Mississippi River was undergoing its own rapid changes. In 1803, U.S. President Thomas Jefferson doubled the United States territory by closing the Louisiana Purchase deal with Napoleon Bonaparte who needed the money to fund his military efforts in France. The U.S. paid just $11 million, or less than three cents per acre, for a huge swath of land that included parts of 15 modern states. The territory stretched from the Canadian border down to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Mississippi River west to the Rocky Mountains. It was a strategic purchase. Settlers from the United States were quickly moving westward into Ohio and Tennessee, and the Mississippi River was key to getting supplies up to the new western settlements. If France kept possession of the territory surrounding the river, they would be able to block the United States from accessing it. Even better, the newly purchased land meant more room for westward expansion. American settlers were eager to explore the plains west of the Mississippi, which promised rich, fertile dirt and new minerals and plants. The new land was so cheap that even poor families could purchase plots and start their own farms. But what lay beyond the plains was still a mystery. No one had yet made a documented trip across the continent, and cartographers didn't really have a clear idea just how vast North America was or what it looked like. 
President Jefferson needed someone who could survey the land and let him know exactly what lay between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains and what commercial, scientific, and agricultural value it might hold. In particular, he was hoping to find the rumored Northwest Passage, a cross-continental waterway that would allow passage east to west between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, easing trade with the Eastern Hemisphere. To accomplish this monumental task, he turned to his private secretary, Meriwether Lewis, a 29-year-old with no experience as an explorer. Lewis recruited his old friend and former military boss, 33-year-old William Clark, who was equally unexperienced to co-lead the expedition. To learn more about Lewis and Clark, check out episode two of Historical Figures, where we dive deeper into the partnership of these two remarkable men. The Corps of Discovery Expedition originally consisted of 35 military men selected by Clark for their wilderness survival skills and hunting ability. Clark only wanted young, single, healthy men because the journey ahead promised to be long, arduous, and dangerous. They didn't want to leave any widows or fatherless children in their wake. In addition to the military men, there were only two civilians— York, a slave who belonged to Clark and hoped to earn his freedom through his work on the expedition, and George Druyar, a half-Shawnee scout and interpreter. But even with Druyar on board, the Corps wouldn't be able to effectively communicate with all the Native American tribes they would encounter. Druyar only spoke French, English, and Shawnee, a branch of the Algonquian language common amongst Canadian and Northeastern tribes. As the band moved west, his interpretation skills would become less valuable. Relations were already strained between the eastern tribes and the invading white settlers, so diplomacy and communication would be crucial to the survival of the expedition. They needed a translator who spoke at least some of the native languages of the plains and west, like Shoshone and Hidatsa. The expedition departed from their camp in Illinois on May 14, 1804. The first leg of the journey was relatively easy. The group sailed west across the Missouri River, traveling over 700 miles by winter. Then, in the winter of 1804, half a year after the expedition set off, they finally found the interpreter they had been looking for. When the Corps made it to the Hidatsan territories in what is now North Dakota and Montana, Lewis and Clark encountered Toussaint Charbonneau and his young wives, Otter Woman and Sacagawea. Charbonneau spoke some Hidatsa, but both young women spoke French, Hidatsa, and Shoshone. They would make perfect interpreters. Lewis and Clark offered Charbonneau a handsome reward of money and land in exchange for his services and the services of his Shoshone-speaking wives. Just like that, he was on board. Sacagawea was several months pregnant with her first child at this point, at the age of only 16. But she had no choice in the matter. If Charbonneau wanted her to join the journey, that's what she had to do. For unclear reasons, Otter Woman didn't end up joining the Corps on their journey. She simply disappears from the historical record after the Corps departed. But Sacagawea was along for the Odyssey. Sacagawea's presence is only rarely acknowledged in the accounts of the campaign written by Lewis, Clark, and various other members of the party, so there's little we know about her day-to-day life. But whenever she is mentioned, it's clear that she was invaluable to the success of the mission. On February 11, 1805, while they were still at camp, Sacagawea gave birth to her baby, 
a little boy called Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. Alone in a camp with no doctors and no other women, Louis was tasked with helping her through the difficult birth. On the advice of a contract boatman named La Jeunesse, he administered crushed rattlesnake to her in order to hasten the labor. The baby was born healthy. Louis and Clark nicknamed him Pomp. By all accounts, Sacagawea doted on her infant son. She would have to take extraordinary care to protect him during the dangerous journey they were about to undertake. We'll get back to the expedition after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The core of Discovery, including 16-year-old Sacagawea and her new baby Jean-Baptiste, started towards the Rocky Mountains on April 7, 1805, less than two months after Sacagawea gave birth. On May 14th, about a thousand miles into their journey, the party encountered their first major setback. The canoes in the back of the party encountered a grizzly bear who, upon being shot, chased and terrorized the explorers until it could finally be put down. Meanwhile, at the head of the expedition, a sudden storm whipped up and set the boats careening. Lewis recounted that Charbonneau, who was, quote, perhaps the most timid waterman in the world, panicked and mishandled the boat's sails, causing the boat to tip over and fill up with water, dumping out most of its cargo. Lewis, standing on shore, wrote that the incident filled him with horror, for the canoe held, quote, almost every article indispensably necessary to ensure the success of the enterprise, end quote. The company was nearly 2,000 miles from civilization, and they had no way to purchase more supplies. Charbonneau may have just doomed them all to certain death. Luckily... Sacagawea kept her head where her husband did not. She managed to catch and preserve most of the papers and lighter supplies that had tipped overboard before they could be lost to the river. She did this while also struggling to keep baby Jean-Baptiste out of the water. Lewis admitted that the young Native American woman displayed, quote, equal fortitude and resolution with any person on board, end quote, and a great deal more than Charbonneau. Unfortunately, Sacagawea became gravely ill with a mysterious illness in June 1805, four months after giving birth. Lewis and Clark didn't know what afflicted her, but Lewis administered several common folk treatments, including bleeding, compresses, mineral water, and a tea made from tree bark and opiates in an attempt to save her. Though the medicine of the time was primitive and the explorer's grasp of female anatomy was sketchy at best, Lewis wrote that, quote, If she dies, it will be the fault of her husband. I am now convinced, end quote. Leading historians to speculate that the illness was a lingering complication from childbirth or that perhaps Sacagawea had become pregnant again and miscarried. Charbonneau was also known to beat his wife, which could have caused her harm. It's also possible the cold water caused her some lasting health harm after the boat tipping accident. 
Her cold, as the explorers rather mildly explained it, spelled larger ramifications for the party as a whole. If Sacagawea were to die, she would be leaving them without an interpreter, and with a motherless baby they couldn't trust Charbonneau to take care of. Luckily, after a couple weeks, Sacagawea recovered well enough to keep moving, a success Lewis attributed to his own ministrations. Modern historians have hypothesized that Sacagawea's illness was brought on by pelvic inflammatory disease and that Lewis's treatment of mineral water may actually have helped keep the disease at bay. Later that month, in June 1805, Sacagawea, Charbonneau, and baby Jean-Baptiste accompanied Clark and York on a hike. But the group was caught in the middle of a sudden deluge that quickly turned into a flash flood. They narrowly escaped with their lives, but left behind clothing and equipment in their haste. Clark ordered the group to return to the camp, quote, as fast as possible, where clothes could be got to cover the child and the woman who was but just recovering from a severe indisposition and cold. I was fearful of a relapse, end quote. Luckily, the relapse didn't come. Sacagawea survived. Throughout the summer, the party continued west through present-day Montana, mapping out their progress across the Rocky Mountains and documenting plants and animals European explorers had never yet encountered. These species included the pronghorn, Lewis's woodpecker, mountain whitefish, and a number of plants from wild rice to juniper. As they moved west, Sacagawea began to recognize the country of her people. She pointed out granite cliffs she'd seen after being captured by the Hadatsa and predicted the group's arrival at a place, quote, where the river has three forks. She was excited to recognize the landmarks of her youth as they approached Shoshone lands. The Corps of Discovery crossed the West all the way through modern-day Montana, but they didn't come across any Native Americans until August 11, 1805. Lewis, who was off scouting with a few other men, saw a lone Shoshone horseman through his spyglass. But when he attempted to move closer and make contact with him using a few words Sacagawea had taught him, the rider fled. Two days later, Lewis came across two women and a child who introduced the traveler to their chief, Kameawait. Lewis and Kameawait smoked a pipe together, and Kameawait agreed to accompany Lewis back the way he had come, to meet the rest of the expedition and trade supplies. When the scouting party returned, Lewis and Clark summoned Sacagawea to translate for them. She was met with a surprise. The chief the explorers had met was none other than her own older brother. According to Lewis, Sacagawea, quote, instantly jumped up and ran and embraced him, throwing over him her blanket and weeping profusely. The chief was himself moved, though not in the same degree. After some conversation between them, she resumed her seat and attempted to interpret for us, but her new situation seemed to overpower her, and she was frequently interrupted by tears, end quote. All in the party were struck by Sacagawea's joy and fortune in seeing her family again, and they named the camp where they met the Shoshone Camp Fortunate in honor of the occasion. 17-year-old Sacagawea finally got a chance to catch up with her brother and friends after a long five years apart. Kamehawait had become the chief, but unfortunately she learned that the rest of her family was dead, except for two brothers or cousins and a baby nephew. 
The trade negotiations between the Shoshone and the explorers was essentially like a long game of telephone. Sacagawea translated her brother's Shoshone into Hidatsa, which Charbonneau then translated to French, which French-Canadian private Francis Labiche related to Lewis and Clark in English. To respond, they had to repeat the entire process in reverse. It was a long and complicated process, but both sides were inclined to be agreeable. Lewis and Clark desperately needed the Shoshone tribe's horses to continue their journey, and Kamehawait was glad to cooperate since they had brought his sister back to him alive. Despite the general goodwill and despite Sacagawea's negotiating skill, the Shoshone managed to extract a high price, asking for a pistol, a knife, and 100 ammunition rounds in exchange for each horse. Kamehawait's people had 700 ponies to trade, but the weapons they asked for were precious to the explorers as well. The supplies they'd set out with were already running low, lost to the river and other accidents. In the end, the Corps of Discovery parted from their new Native American friends with just 29 horses and one mule. Sacagawea could not stay in her homeland with the Shoshone, even though she probably wished to, because legally she belonged to Charbonneau. She may have guided a team of explorers halfway across the continent, but she still had no choice in her own fate. On September 1st, 1805, Lewis and Clark, Sacagawea, and the rest set off again towards the Rocky Mountains. The Shoshone tribe warned them that the peaks ahead were dangerous and steep, but they insisted on traveling on. The Corps were determined to reach the Pacific Ocean before they turned back east to go home. The Shoshone tribe contributed one of their own guides, a man the explorers called Old Toby, to help guide the Corps on their journey. Old Toby led the Corps across the Bitterroot Range, a section of the Rockies in Idaho that was more accessible than others, but also veered over 100 miles out of their way to the coast. The crossing was long and miserable. Clark wrote, quote, I have been wet and as cold in every part as I ever was in my life. Indeed, I was at one time fearful my feet would freeze in the thin moccasins which I wore, end quote. While they were traveling the cold and barren mountains, their supplies quickly dwindled. The Corps were soon met with the risk of starvation. Sacagawea, carrying baby Jean-Baptiste all the way, managed to forage up a steady supply of camas roots, a starchy sweet potato-like vegetable. Her foraging is what kept the party alive through the most dangerous leg of the journey. Even with Sacagawea's best efforts, the explorers were forced to kill some of their horses for their meat. Those on the journey even recalled eating candles. Were it not for the horses and Sacagawea's tireless foraging efforts, it is possible, even likely, that the journey would have ended right there in the Rocky Mountains. Once they finally reached the other side of the pass in October 1805, the party encountered a tribe of Nez Perce. The Native Americans on that side of the Rockies had had very little experience with white men up until that point. And oral history suggests that at their first encounter, the tribe had even considered killing the Corps of Discovery for their weapons. But it was Sacagawea, riding along with baby Jean-Baptiste in tow, that changed the tribe's minds. Seeing the young mother with her papoose, or native baby, the Nez Perce realized that the Corps were not a threat. A party intent on war would surely not travel with a child. A respected elder of the tribe, a woman called Watkuweiss, 
befriended Sacagawea despite their language barrier. She convinced the other Nez Perce to welcome the travelers into their camp. There, the expedition ate well once again, dining on the tribe's dried meat, berries, and roots. They were relieved to be past the worst. After spending a few days with the Nez Perce camp, the party built more canoes and continued their trip west down the Columbia River, hoping to reach the Pacific by the end of the year. As they sailed, they encountered Native Americans from various tribes more and more frequently. Some had blankets and weapons from Europeans, indicating a past trade relationship. Others were so shocked and intrigued by the men of the group that it was clear they had never encountered white people before. But wherever they went, it was Sacagawea and baby Jean-Baptiste who ensured the Corps' safe passage through Native American lands. The hesitant Native Americans, quote, immediately all came out and appeared to assume new life, end quote, upon spotting Sacagawea in the group, Clark reported. He continues, the sight of Sacagawea confirmed our friendly intentions, as no woman ever accompanies a war party in this quarter, end quote. Sacagawea had truly become a crucial member of the party, not just for her foraging and diplomacy skills, but because of the mutual friendship and respect she'd built with the men. On one occasion, when the Corps encountered the Chinooks, Lewis became enamored with the sea otter robe the tribe offered for trade. But no matter what he offered, the Native Americans only wanted one thing, rare blue beads, of which the Corps were fresh out. Sacagawea stepped in and bartered away her own blue-beaded belt in exchange for the robe. Lewis gratefully repaid her with a blue cloth coat. Whether it was because of a mutual respect for one another's talents or Sacagawea's gratitude for Lewis's ministrations during her illness, the tests of the long journey had turned them into true comrades. The Corps of Discovery finally reached the Pacific Ocean near modern-day Portland, Oregon, on November 18, 1805, marking the midpoint of their journey and the culmination of all their exploratory efforts. Clark remarked in his journal that the, quote, men appear much satisfied with their trip, beholding with astonishment this immense ocean, end quote. Having reached the sea, Lewis and Clark decided to camp over the winter. They consulted the entire Corps to decide where to build their camp, and Clark's journal entry from November 24, 1805, indicates that they allowed every member of the expedition to vote, including York and Sacagawea. He noted that Sacagawea was in favor of any place, quote, where there is plenty of edible roots, end quote. They agreed to erect a fort just south of the Columbia River, miles away from the coast. They named it Fort Clatsop, after the Clatsop Native Americans who occupied the region. Over the miserable winter, the Corps struggled to build up their reserves of dried meat and to defend the fort from both unfriendly Native American tribes and hungry animals. The men grew restless with cabin fever, cooped up in the fort for months. They ached to get back out onto the trail. The Corps had made it all the way across the continent to the ocean, but the journey was only halfway done. The return trip would be just as perilous. The journey will continue after this break. Now, back to the story. In the winter of 1805, 17-year-old Sacagawea and the Corps of Discovery had finally made it all the way across the continent to the Pacific Ocean. But as they spent the winter months camped at Fort Clatsop, 
They were slowly succumbing to cabin fever. They longed to get back out on the journey home. On January 6, 1806, the Corps received word from the Clatsop tribe that there was a dead whale beached nearby. The men were all desperate to go, not only to stock up on blubber and oil, but also for the chance to get out of the fort and stretch their legs. Only a few were permitted to join the scouting party, with the rest left behind to guard the fort. Sacagawea in particular wanted to see the whale, having heard about such legendarily big fish from other coastal tribes. She had never seen a whale before, and had not even seen the Pacific yet, as she was left behind when the original scouting party reached the shore. Charbonneau did not want his wife and child to leave the fort, and he appealed to Lewis and Clark to prevent her from going. But Sacagawea was insistent. She was a crucial part of the Corps, and her interpretation skills had come in handy many times over. It was unfair that she shouldn't be allowed to see the ocean or the whale after having come all this way. Clark noted that Sacagawea, quote, was very impatient to be permitted to go with me, and was therefore indulged. She observed that she had traveled a long way with us to see the great waters, and that now that monstrous fish was also to be seen, she thought it very hard that she could not be permitted to see either, end quote. Lewis and Clark permitted her to join the small party, but when Clark, Sacagawea, and the rest reached the whale carcass a few days later, it was a disappointing sight. They found the behemoth reduced to little more than a giant skeleton, most of its meat and blubber already stripped away by Native Americans. When the harsh winter eventually let up in mid-March, the Corps of Discovery prepared for their return journey. They left Fort Clatsop on March 23, 1806, and followed almost the same trail back as they'd taken west. A little over three months later, at the beginning of July, the expedition split in two to explore more territory. Lewis and nine others traveled across what is now northern Montana toward what we know as the Missouri River Falls. Meanwhile, Clark took the rest of the party back across the Bitterroot Range of the Rocky Mountains, led by 18-year-old Sacagawea. She had an unfaltering memory of landmarks she'd seen in her youth amongst the Shoshone. At one point, the group encountered a large sandstone pillar in the middle of Montana. They named it Pompey's Pillar, after Lewis and Clark's nickname for Sacagawea's son. The two groups joined up once again on August 12, 1806, near the confluence of the Missouri and Yellowstone Rivers. They carved out canoes and sailed once more down the Missouri River towards the Mandan villages in Camp Dubois, where their journey had begun. Upon reaching the villages on August 14th, Sacagawea and Charbonneau parted ways with the Corps, who were to continue east and report back to President Jefferson. Charbonneau was paid $500 and was given about 320 acres of land in the new territory as payment for his services. Sacagawea, as a native woman, was awarded nothing. Clark wrote a letter to Charbonneau years later, acknowledging Sacagawea's contributions and the party's failure to repay her for them. He wrote, quote, Sacagawea, who accompanied you on that long, dangerous, and fatiguing route to the Pacific Ocean and back, deserved a greater reward for her attention than we had in our power to give, end quote. 
Clark offered to take little Jean-Baptiste back east with him to raise him in the civilized United States where he might grow up with more opportunities. But Sacagawea was loath to part with her child while he was so young, and she and Charbonneau were both more comfortable in the open plains of the West. Neither of them had any desire to move east to the United States with the rest of the party. Lewis and Clark returned to the United States in late September 1806, a month after they parted ways with Sacagawea. They sent word to President Jefferson that their mission was complete. They had traveled all the way across the Louisiana Purchase Territory and even further to the Pacific Ocean in a little under two years. Shockingly, every member of the original party had survived but one, Sergeant Charles Floyd, who died of appendicitis before they crossed the Rocky Mountains. The explorers were lauded on their return, and their maps and journals instantly became invaluable resources to the young nation. But though she was occasionally cited in their journals, Sacagawea's contributions went widely unacknowledged. After the expedition, reports of Sacagawea's life became scarce. In fact, we can't even say for sure where she lived or when she died. We do know that Sacagawea, Charbonneau, and their son, Jean-Baptiste, lived with Charbonneau's other wives among the Hidatsa tribes of Missouri for three years after their return in 1806. Sacagawea likely turned her focus to farm work and motherhood. In 1810, when Sacagawea was 22, Charbonneau sent five-year-old Jean-Baptiste back east to Clark, who enrolled him in a Catholic boarding school. We don't know how Sacagawea felt about being separated from her son, but it's likely she didn't have much say in the matter either way. Soon after that, Charbonneau was hired as an interpreter for the Missouri Fur Company. He and his wives relocated to South Dakota's Fort Manuel Lisa. Sacagawea became pregnant again in 1811 and gave birth to a daughter named Lizette in August 1812. After giving birth, she once again became violently ill. Whether her illness was the same one which had afflicted her on the journey after Jean-Baptiste's birth is unknown, but the symptoms appeared to be similar. Documents from Missouri suggest that Sacagawea succumbed to her illness on December 20, 1812. She was just 25 years old. John C. Luttig of the Missouri Fur Company recorded her death in his journal. Quote, Sacagawea died of a putrid fever. She was a good and the best woman in the fort, aged about 25 years. She left a fine infant girl, end quote. Baby Lizette was only four months old at the time. The next year, in August 1813, Jean-Baptiste and Lizette were both legally adopted by William Clark, and Lizette was sent to join her brother and Clark back east. No more is known about Lizette after her adoption. It's assumed she did not survive her childhood. Meanwhile, Jean-Baptiste grew up to become a trapper, hunter, and gold miner, and served as a scout in the Mexican-American War. But the Shoshone tell a different version of events— According to them, instead of dying in 1812, Sacagawea moved west on her own and eventually settled back in Wyoming with her original tribe. She lived a long life and died amongst her own people on April 9, 1884, at the age of 95. Unfortunately, because Luddig's details about Sacagawea's early death were vague at best, and the Shoshone did not write down their history, there's no way to be absolutely sure which version of Sacagawea's fate is the truth. 
Regardless of whether she died young or lived a long and full life, Sacagawea's legacy lay dormant for some time after the expedition ended. She didn't rise to popularity until the beginning of the 20th century, when suffragettes Eva Emery Dye and Grace Raymond Hebbard lauded her as an example of feminine power and contributions to the United States. She became a symbol of the women's suffrage movement, and Eva Dye wrote that, quote, the story of Sacagawea has awakened the women of the entire country, end quote. Dye's 1802 book, The Conquest, isn't a fully factual biography. She fictionalized Sacagawea's story, embellishing the scant few facts we know about her life to build her up into a legend and a rallying point for American women. In truth, Sacagawea's contributions don't need to be embellished in order to stand out. She was amazing enough on her own. Sacagawea's translation skills, diplomacy, and foraging abilities contributed unequivocally to the survival of Lewis and Clark's core of discovery. She helped open the doors to the United States' westward expansion and became an enduring symbol of American women and women's rights. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode releases every other Wednesday. You can listen to all of ParCast shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Jeanette Manning and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.